Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The brain is the hungriest organ in the body. This little three-pound organ, which is 2% of your body's weight, consumes 25% of your body's energy. We were supposed to run away from tigers, mate, reproduce, and die. Then the average age was anywhere between 15 to 30 years of age. Yeah, 47% of the population made it beyond age 15. The average age was essentially somewhere between 27 to 37. Now we're living long and long, 70, 80, and that's fantastic. I love it. But the brain is being overwhelmed. It's the organ that continually works, even at night. In fact, the best work it does is at night. If you traumatize it through lifestyle, you're going to affect it. Eventually, it's going to catch up. That's Doctors Dean and Aisha Scherzai. And this is episode 126 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hi friends, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. My name is Simon Hill. I'm your show host, nutritionist, and author. It's great to be here with you today for what is a new format for the show, a compilation of very important learnings from the handful of episodes I've had previously with Drs. Dean and Aisha Sherzai, two brilliant neurologists. In this episode, you will hear from them talking about improving focus minimizing stress, reducing brain fog, when our brain is most productive throughout the day, nutrition tips for preventing cognitive decline, whether the ketogenic diet and biohacking is worth exploring, the importance of fats for brain health, nutrient deficiencies in brain health, other aspects of our lifestyle that affect brain health, such as sleep and how to improve our sleep routine, depression and pharmaceutical medications for depression, the importance of developing cognitive reserve, and a whole lot more. Each of these episodes with the Shares Eyes in the past has been hugely popular, hugely popular in their own right. And, and this here, this episode is a compilation of the very best bits, something that I thought would be helpful as a summary and a, a nice way of consolidating information into what is hopefully very easy to digest and highly practical for you information that you can grab a hold of and use to improve your health and well-being. Before we dive into things, I do want to thank everyone, everyone for their support following the launch of my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, last week. Bookstores are telling me that it is absolutely flying off shelves and currently it's ranked number two on the overall bestsellers list on Booktopia and Book Depository online. I knew that it was really good, really important information, but the response so far does tell me that the book is reaching the mainstream, which is just so pleasing and, and really couldn't have been achieved without your support. So many of you have been soaking up the information and sharing your favorite parts with me and your friends and your family already on social media. It's been absolutely incredible. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for that. Okay. Find a quiet spot, notepads out, pen in hand, 
and let's do this. A masterclass from the Shares Eyes on how the lifestyles we lead affects our brain health. See you on the other side. Let's go through some practical tips to sort of help people focus in on things that they're maybe studying or doing in their life. They're having problems clearing the distractions and the clutter. What are some tips and things that people can do in terms of setting up their lifestyle to maximize the focus? I think it has to start with planning. You know, we always talk about stress. It's not just a monosyllabic term. There's good stress and then there's bad stress. And determining what is good stress and what is bad stress is very important because you have to reduce your bad stress. Bad stress is the type of stress that is not leading to anything in your life. It's not connected to your purpose. It's it's somebody else's and has been imposed on you and you don't see light at the end of the tunnel. That is bad stress. And when you define it, it's those daily worries, small little things that you worry about over and over again, and you really aren't doing anything to get rid of it. And you're probably taking them to bed as well. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Whether it's relationship, job related, children, anything that might be. So just putting it on a notebook or a wall or a whiteboard to say, this is bothering me redefine it, put a circle around it. That's bad stress. At the same time, identifying good stress. And the good stress is the type of activity that one wants to be connected to because it it leads to your goal and mission in life. Whether it's that educational material that you just got that you want to learn or whether it's going back to school or being involved in a project and in your job or taking on a project and excelling in it. That's good stress. Yes, it does cause a lot of stress. It might actually, you know, ruin your sleep for a few days, but you know that you will succeed in it. You know that that actually will add something to your life to make you a bigger person, to to establish that purpose. So it starts from there. It's just defining the two and then slowly and gradually working towards increasing your good stress and getting rid of bad stress. So to make it even more tangible, we don't really sit down and write things down specifically. I mean, we, we are in a world of slogans and memes. Write down the bad stress. Mm-hmm clearly in front of you. In fact, put it in a whiteboard in front of you because maybe you won't get some insight from it now, but all of a sudden while you're sitting there, there's a eureka moment Mm -hmm. and we'll come out. The most important thing in our life, which is good stress, which is purpose-driven life, which is supposed to actually bring out your courage, which is supposed to give you direction and bring the full potential of their mind, we never work on. We don't. We just work on the things that have some of them have failed and we repeat thinking that's going to go away. We know the definition of insanity, but, and, and others that, that we, we just do because we've been doing it. Work systematically, strategically towards increasing the good stress. And by just doing that, because it's a zero sum economics, the brain only has so much space. Well, it has a lot of space. I'm talking about the conscious, but it's going to push away the bad stress. If the greater real estate is owned by good stress, where you're trying to create a world-renowned podcast that's going to change Australia and the world, the small, the other stresses become small in connection to that mm. because it serves so many people and you know it's going to affect people. You know that it's going to change the world from, from environment to you know, health and everything else. 
that really, that bill that just went off, is that going to be that big of a stress in comparison to this? No, this stress just took over That's the universe. It just takes the big, it takes over your brain and it becomes positive. And why is that important? It actually is the anatomical importance. The interpretation is in the same place, limbic system, frontal lobe. But good stress stimulates the part of the amygdala and the limbic system that says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Remember the good stress. And then it sends different messages to the hippocampus, sorry, hypothalamus, and then the pituitary. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it actually does something different to the body than bad stress. Bad stress actually creates discombobulation and disorder in the pituitary, which is where the hormones of thyroid, insulin, growth hormone, everything is controlled from there, right? Completely different outcome versus good stress, which actually modulates it. Oxytocin levels go up, cortisol levels go down, adrenaline levels go down. The thyroid is actually optimized. The insulin levels, we know experiments that emotions, how immediately they affect their insulin level and growth level and testosterone level. So by just doing that act of defining your good stress and increasing it systematically over time, you've just actually completely changed your immune system, your endocrine system, your vascular system. And this is not soft science. This is actually the, the, the connection between the, um, the limbic and hypothalamic pituitary axis is well known. And they've done many experiments, both animal and especially human, that by doing one, cortisol goes up, the bad one. By doing the other, the oxytocin levels go up and cortisol goes down and everything else changes in your body. I wonder the, you know, this, this smartphone era that we're in now, I wonder if that's taking away some of the good stress in terms of our, we're almost outsourcing a lot of, let's call them good problems, like finding your way somewhere that you've never been before or storing information in there and, and relying on it to recall that information. Do you ever think about that? Yes, I think we do. It, it all depends. I think the smartphones and um, other technological advantages that we have around us can play a very positive role in helping us reach that positive stress stage that we want to. A lot of the things that we do are just repetitive, nonsensical activities, most of them. And if technology can take over and help us with that so that most of our time and the mind capacity is spent on being creative and tapping into that brain capacity, that is ideal. Now, as it happens, along with that important role, it presents us with a lot of distractions as well. Speaking from a personal experience with a lot of patients who have cognitive decline at a very young age or the brain fog that they come in. But how many times do we hear about brain fog? When you look at their lives and you assess them beyond the biochemical nature of their metabolism, they're just overwhelmed with different elements in their life. There is clutter literally and figuratively around their life a lot of stuff that they are dwelling in. So getting rid of those and then having them use their iPhones or technology for prioritizing their activities. So, you know, scheduling things is is incredibly important. Um, Getting rid of clutter is important. So yes, so iPhones and technology can help us, but it's important how to use it, to know how to use it and to use it for things that will help you organize. What, What actually is brain fog? 
So brain fog is, is a term that is used to describe a stage where focus and attention is affected. Okay. And is, is the, the biggest contributor to that having just having too much clutter or like spreading yourself too thin across way too many things? For people who don't have the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, yes, it's the distraction and lack of focus. It's for not really focusing and attending to the important things and not being able to get rid of the things that are not important in your life. There there are many, many different things. I mean, people who have high blood pressure can get brain fog. People who have diabetes or even pre-diabetes. We did a study, a research in Haines, large nationwide data, that even people who didn't have diabetes but had higher levels of insulin resistance, they had lower cognitive state. And usually with that, you see brain fog. So there's metabolic reasons. There's, you know, cholesterol. We, we know in our patients, when people say, oh, your brain is made of fat, but therefore you need fat. Uh, it's beyond ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we could spend five hours on this talking about how the vasculature we see, the white matter disease in people who have high cholesterol, there's almost a science denial going on right now that even cholesterol is not bad. So vascular reasons, there's metabolic reasons. There is the one thing that Aisha beautifully says that uh, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's only doing multiple things badly. <laughs> you know, the concept of the brain is a linear organ. It's a linear functioning organ. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's f- fantastic. It's processing power is bewildering. One times 10 to the 50th processing power, but it's still linear. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can do multiple things, but if you put them in their own place, finish, go to the next and, and compartmentalize. And everybody thinks that, you know, people who are successful, they're multitaskers. They are. Sometimes they are. And sometimes despite that, because of their capacity situation, they were successful. But majority of them are great organizers mm-hmm. that organize everything in their linear pathways, get it done. And that checking, oh my goodness, you want to get addicted to something, get a checklist and check off. That stimulates dopamine. Get one pathway of work, get it done, check it off. Do that 10 times and come come back in, in, in your podcast. Tell me how it has changed your life. Mm, I do that. I, I still stick to the old checklist. My yes. computer yeah. and my phone. There's nothing like it. I separate them. I have like one for the podcast. Yes. One for just admin like you spoke about yeah. before. And it just, it makes it so so simple. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And, and it's much easier to then say, okay, that's what I'm going to focus on now. Everything about admin. Yes. Instead of jumping back and forth. It's impossible. We often hear that women are better at multitasking. Is that because they're better at organizing those different <laughs> compartments or is there any truth to that? Can I, can I this be Mother's Day? I'm going to take, I've been speaking a lot. About that. So all, I did a PhD in leadership. Useless. It's all <laughs> leadership attributes are feminine. When we were running around in the woods, barely surviving, not shooting each other with arrows and, and you know, uh, getting in fights while trying to get a, you know, a, a bear. And most of the time people think we were hunter gatherers. We weren't, we're more gatherers than hunters. <laughs> we're very unsuccessful. And the data shows that women were in the home. They were actually the leaders of the community, consensus building, organizing. Each person was given a task. In fact, we've traveled to so many countries and even third world countries. And that's where you see some of this a lot that they're, they're, each person was given different tasks according to their capacities, their strengths. All this was done by women. Delegation. Delegation. Yeah. Conversation, delegation, communication. All of this were feminine attributes of leadership. The only thing we had was, you know, the, 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 uh, the anger and the, you know, just go do that, you know. <laughs> and that's, that's leadership to, to men. 
I'm, I'm being funny and they're great men leaders. I don't want anybody angry with this, but, of course. but reality is those are feminine attributes. It's not the multitasking. It's ability to manage multiple tasks wisely because you had to. And there's also the um, the concept of empathy. I think women, yes. it just comes very natural for them to make sure that everybody's involved and that everybody's taken care of their emotions and their physical well-being. So that plays a part into it too. Back to this conversation around focus, is there a particular time where people are generally better at getting focused? Is that a certain number of hours after waking or after a meal? And and my other Part of that question is if say you have a task to do and, and, and you look at it and it's maybe it's a four hour task, is there any evidence or anecdotal evidence from your end to suggest that you should try and do that all at once or break it up? So as, as far as the first uh, question is concerned, what time of the day is best uh, for optimal brain function? I guess it depends, but for most people, it's usually around mid-morning because you've had your sleep, you're refreshed, your brain is ready to go. The microglia at night have done a great job of getting rid of all the junk and the garbage material. And um, you've had a good meal, hopefully you've had a good meal. That is the best time to actually, you know, it's, it's a great time for creativity. But then again, there are a lot of people who actually do very well when there's no noise, there are no people, they do their at best night. jobs at night. So it depends. It all depends on how people function and their patterns of life. And as far as the second question goes, the amount of time that you need to spend on a, an activity to get it done, it depends on how long you can focus and concentrate. There are a lot of people who can just sit there for hours and especially if they have the right environment, they can get it done. Then there are individuals like, you know, one of our children who cannot focus and concentrate more than 20 minutes and has to have a break. And Again, it's it's the different patterns that people have been raised with. Don't label it. Optimize it. You optimize by starting with focus. How do you focus? And when do you focus? Find your optimal time of the day in that period. Try to see if you can exclude sound, all the stimulus around you, and create... And by the way, when people say well, I'm, I'm more language, more visual, we're all more visual. So add a little bit of component of visualization. And then add an emotional component. So you become good at it. Visualization, meaning that if you want to memorize things, visualize that thing and see if you can memorize it in context. Some of the tools that people use is like the Roman room and others where you memorize one of your rooms, everything in that room. And then you're, you have a list of groceries, 100 items. And you, you visualize yourself going into that room and putting everything in different parts of the room, especially if they have shape and and, and, and size or, or texture correlation and see how much of that you can memorize. Now, it's not about the trick. The trick is a trick, but it's about the ability of your brain to focus on that kind of a visualization that making that a habit and not a process that you have to rethink every time. Mm. That can be built by anybody, anytime. But I find, like Aisha said, find your optimal time of the day and use that time to do these kind of exercises that builds focus. And you'll see that because none of us do this, the, the world champion memorizer, who's not a super genius, not, nothing, uh, memorized 56 decks of cards in a row. Wow. 56 decks, 56 times 52. That's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it was all because of focus, because of, you know, building this capacity of focus. So we all have that, te- that, that ability. 
Not that we want to memorize 52. Well, maybe we do if we want to go to Vegas, but but but, yeah, but they figure that out What's quickly. That maybe Ocean's Ocean's Eleven or Eleven. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but for 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 everyday life, for everyday yeah. life, ability to get in a meeting and immediately have access to more than seven items, which your short-term memory is designed for. Seven items. How about you have access to 200 items? Mm-hmm. You just immediately gain a, an unsurpassed advantage of everybody else. And something else that I read in, in, in your kid's book was around the environment. So if you're focusing and learning something in a particular environment, if we use the example of uh, an examination and you were doing it with a, with a table, like sitting at a table like an exam, then you're more likely to be able to recall that knowledge. Yes. That right? That's yes, right. yes. yes. Situational. Yeah. There we go. Little trick for anyone out there who's got <laughs> exams coming up. Yes, exactly. Oh, definitely. Because these are triggers. And it also kind of focuses everything on that, that environment so that the subconscious distractor has gotten rid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any specific foods or micronutrients that we should be aware of from a focus and concentration point of view? I think focusing on foods that are high in nutrients and low in unnecessary calories is, is important. So even if you had like a handful of things to eat, it has to be the healthiest thing for the brain. And, you know, it's, 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 there's so many different foods that are great for the brain. And we, as a family, we try to eat a wholesome food that is includes, you know, a good amount of all of them, but there are particular ones that stand out. Uh, so for example, you know, berries stand out as being one of the best foods for the brain. Why? Because they have flavonoids and, uh, you know, these particular colored compounds that are very high in anti-inflammatory products. And when you eat those, you provide the necessary nutrients for your brain to build those connections of habits to be able to help you focus in rather than get distracted. And that inflammation and the oxidation and the process of getting rid of the junk is not there. The other things that are wonderful for concentration are walnuts or any nuts, particularly walnuts. Um, But not not in excess. Not in excess, of course, because they're a great source of polyunsaturated fats and they are high in fiber and have some protein and they're a good source of nutrients. So like a small handful. A small handful. Nothing more than that. Yeah. Yeah. We actually said this to one of our patients that nuts are good for you. And he was eating, you know, jars of walnuts every single day. And that was, that's all never a good idea. And then as far as other things are concerned, you know, having fiber, you know, complex carbohydrates with fiber, such as oatmeal and whole grains that uh, create a steady flow of glucose, which is the most important fuel for our brain. Everybody, you know, talks about ketogenic diet and the importance of ketones, but we do need a constant source of glucose in our body. And the best thing are, you know, complex carbohydrates, whether it's from whole grains or vegetables or fruits is, is very important. You don't want to have tanked glucose levels in your body because that's when the body goes into a stage of starvation and that causes a lot of brain fog and uh, lack of concentration. Now, speaking to that, the energy, long-term benefit for the brain, which is all the vegetables that you have to give it all the, you know, selenium, zinc, choline. And, and, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you can't get choline from vegetables except from eggs. And no, there's plenty in vegetables. And so that's long-term benefit. Short-term benefit, short-term negative is things that stimulate rapidly that you might feel good immediately, but long-term it can be damaged. A very short-term is sugar. Uh, it's funny, when I was in high school, I was captain of my soccer team. Somebody told me honey, and, and I said, okay, so I, I 
bought jars of honey for all the soccer players. And right before the game, about 10 minutes, we gave them, I was one of those dictators. You have to eat half the jar. So everybody was revved up and ramped up you know, for five minutes, 10 minutes. <laughs> Halfway through the game, everybody was dead because it just tanked. And it actually does that. And instead of just coming to back to normal, you go lower. So, so the ketones or ketogenic diet is the same thing. A little longer term, but same thing. That's why people on ketogenic diet feel a boost initially. Why? I have it written in the wall here, the cycle. The molecule is a three-carbon molecule. You know, I did a whole uh, uh, comic bit bit on this. For glucose to get into your body, it's this cycle. It it has to do a lot of work. Imagine glucose being a young man trying to date a young girl. In order for that young man to get to know this young girl, it has to go to the door. And if it's too many young men, the door goes in. You know, the receptor goes in. So no insulin receptor, no... you could. In insulin resistance, there's a lot of sugar, but there's no receptor, so it can't go in. So just the right amount of young men, and one of them knocks, and then the grandfather comes, and the father comes, and the uncle, and all this, and it's a lot of work, a lot of work. And then you, there's somewhat stable relationship, and then somehow you get to the mitochondria, and you can imagine what mitochondria is in that relationship. It's a little oh, X-rated, but, 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 but it took a lot of work to get to that relationship. <laughs> Ketones, two carbon no receptor, right through the cell wall, right to the mitochondria. Forget about the father, you just cheated. You went through the window. And yeah, you feel good initially, lots of energy, lots of whatever you want to say. But long-term inflammation, long-term lots of cell damage, even amyloid accumulation, we know this. So short-term benefit, when did we ever lose this perspective that short-term benefit is benefit? There's a lot of things that you feel good with short-term. You want short-term? Start doing cocaine. You're going to feel revved up like crazy, but that's going to be very short term. Mm. You know, ketone, ketogenic diet is the same thing. Short term, you feel revved up, you're going to lose weight, but that's just temporary weight. Remember the muscles that have carbohydrates plus the water that's bound, that's 20, 15 pounds, long term, crash. And I think if I may add this, you're you trying know, to get away from that analogy. No, I can never say it as flowery as you, Dean. You are amazing. But, you know, when, when ketones have been touted as, as a great source of fuel for the brain, it's always in the context of a brain that has been shocked. Yeah. That brain and the brain cells have not had proper glucose entry as a fuel. So obviously there's something wrong with the receptors. Obviously there might most likely is some level of insulin resistance. So ketones as a shortcut use a completely different pathway and a door to get into the brain and the brain feels amazing. Now, again, that's just short term. How about getting rid of all that pathology that has shocked the brain to begin with and start giving it the right fuel, the long-term fuel that is healthier, that is sustainable, and that does not damage the blood vessels and other structures that are responsible for proper brain functioning. That's the way to do it, long-term, short-term. But for focus, the foods, long-term, whole food, plant-based. Amazing ability to foster and build the brain. Short-term, again, it's on the negative side. Get rid of things that stimulate, like sugars and things of that nature that affect that focus. And, and even caffeine, for some people it's good, there are studies that show that caffeine short-term has the benefit from focus. For some people who already have some anxiety, who already have some focus problems, it actually is negative. So it's a little more complex than that. So it's not just that caffeine is good and bad, it's the situational. So that's what we were actually talking about is 
each person has to figure out where they are in that spectrum of attention and apply. But, in, but the focus should be on long-term development. Mm-hmm. That's not as sexy as give me almonds and I'm going to be doing, getting A's on the test. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like this, this whole biohacking, you know, that's what it's called. And it's dressed up as a, as this new sexy thing, you know, take your focus and cognition to the next level. Right. But it sounds like there's a real underappreciation for A, what's happening at the cell level and B, what are the long-term effects? The only thing they're hacking is the marketing scheme. That assumes they know more about the specifics of the brain than they do. I'm, we're neurologists. Yeah. We're neuroscientists. And I'm not trying to appeal to authority here, I guess, yeah. indirectly. It Maybe is a little that. bit. Well, I mean, <laughs> there, there, is, there is some science around the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, right? So, so yeah. that's what she was talking about. Ketosis was initially used for a subtype of a subtype of epilepsy. In children. In children. Intractable epilepsy, meaning that epilepsy that was not being treated by three or four anti-epileptic drugs. Why would you use that as your model of treating everybody? This is called marketing hacking, where you take a small exceptional and you just change the words enough to make generalities. When a brain is so damaged that even three anti-epileptics is not controlling it and controlling seizures. A seizure medication. And the only thing you do is to lower the pH severely Mm -hmm. to just dampen that brain. Is that really your model of optimal brain health? And none of these studies have been, you know, conducted over three weeks. We actually don't know the long-term effect of ketogenic diet. It is usually during that very acute stage where the person or the child is about to die, that ketogenic diet is applied. It's like a last resort. It is a last resort. It is a last resort. Let's talk about some other things that are popping up, adaptogens, and and there's, you know, various uh, herbs and mushrooms and ashwagandha and lion's mane and cordyceps, things like that. Is there there much science or or evidence that you've seen to support the use of these sort of products as complementary to a healthy diet? I suppose there are certain foods that have more of of the compounds that reduce inflammation and reduce oxidative byproducts in the brain. And when it comes to those adaptogens, unfortunately, so far, there has been no research to support its use. The anecdotes are so small and they haven't really been reproduced in populations for us to say, yes, it's great and go ahead and have it. I mean, obviously if it's in its, you know, unprocessed form, I mean, mushrooms in itself is an amazing food. It's it's great for immunity. It's great as a source of minerals and anti-inflammatory substances. But, you know, to kind of hone in onto that as a quick fix again is, you know, promoting the concept of reductionism. Some lower hanging fruit. Yeah. yeah I mean, and let's put, let's take it actually to the neurotransmitter level. So how does the brain work? I mean, it has certain structural functions that we just spoke about earlier, frontal mm-hmm. lobe, so on and so forth. And the connections are very complex and it has to do with acetylcholine, serotonin, norepinephrine, uh, GABA neurotransmitters, dopamine, and all these other, uh, tra- glycine. So these are neurotransmitters and they are not, just for one function. They're all interconnected for multiple functions. So what are they hacking? I would like to know for them to explain to me, what are they hacking? And how could one molecule that you add would hack everything in such a perfect way that would bring out a potential behavior, especially acutely or in short term? It does not make sense at all. I mean, I would love that to work because I deal with patients. We deal with patients. Mm -hmm. We 
I, I, I'm proud to say that just this week, I cried with a patient. For me, it's not a hacking thing. It's not a, a selling a product thing. For me, it's that patient that's dying in front of me and, and all from Alzheimer's. For me, that's patient that came to me because somebody had said that we can test your blood levels and find your deficits and then give you the right level, the level of vitamins to reverse your Alzheimer's. And after they've spent $31,000, yes, that's what they did. They were broke because you're, you're grasping for any hope. Now they're broke. And then they come to me and say, you know, it didn't work. It's, it's, it's a major, major problem right now because the people that are most desperate, the elderly that are suffering from cognitive decline are, and being thrown these words, and it's not just by itself. With that comes selling. Dr. Guntry, number one book in America, Plant Paradox. Lectins are bad. As the book comes out, guess who's selling lectin blocking pills? Mm-hmm. Product line. Yes. Yeah. That's where the danger is. I, we're selling the unsexy. Well, we're sexy, but, but the, the unsexy, <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is the, the complex life. Mm-hmm. Sleep free, mm. but good sleep with all that things that you have to do. Fruits and vegetables, but more variety, more color. More, you know, and, and that, yeah. Which, I mean, is actually empowering when you when you know that information, right, yes. the listeners, because it means that the answer doesn't lie in some sort of complex product or some sexy product or whatever that's yeah. out there. There's yeah. so much that you can just do on a daily basis by keeping things relatively simple. And it's not small. No, Aisha it's huge. The, the biggest study, I'm going to... Uh, the goddess of research for me. <laughs> we talked about it yeah. during last podcast. I do a lot of yeah. talking about it. She's an amazing researcher. She did the largest study. We talked about it in the last. So the beauty of that study was that it showed that just hopefully plant-based reduced stroke risk by 44%. All the brain fog, all the vascular diseases that are not part of that study, which is a much bigger category, are affected by that. Mm-hmm. 44%. I mean, that's amazing that the food that you eat, even in small increments, can affect your vascular disease. Yeah, it may seem simple, but it's the most profound thing that you can do. So dietary fats are important for brain health, but it's, it's actually a problem of quantity and quality that is causing the disease. The brain does have you know, structures that are made of fat and we need that raw material for the integrity of the brain. But when we consume too much of it and the wrong type of it, so saturated fats actually cause inflammation at the vascular level. And when people tend to have the genes or say the APOE4 genes that doesn't really transport cholesterol and fat across the cell and doesn't actually do a very good job at metabolizing it properly, that's when problems set in. As a matter of fact, we were reading some articles that came out just a couple of weeks ago where people who have Alzheimer's disease actually have abnormalities of fat and cholesterol removal from the cells. And you get to see micelles or, you know, particles of cholesterol just stuck in there and the brain is not able to remove it. So we're learning more and more about it. But, you know, just because parts of the brain is made of fat doesn't necessarily mean we have to just guzzle down fat. You know, we get enough fat from our food. We get enough fat from an unprocessed plant-based diet and the body itself actually produces cholesterol and that's enough. And on the other hand, we see the damage that cholesterol and saturated fats cause at the vascular level. 
sometimes it's difficult to understand that the way food and nutrients get to the brain is through these very, very sensitive arteries. And if these arteries are damaged, the inner lining and the endothelium of these arteries are damaged because of saturated fats, forget about getting nutrition to the brain. Brain gets enough fat. Yeah, we might actually give some omega-3s and the, the Adventist Health study just came out that actually vegans had more omega-3 levels than omnivores. And that was actually, even to me, that was a shock. Uh, you would think that because they eat egg and this, and, but no, we have enough in your chia and your flaxseed and all these things, mm -hmm. plenty for your brain and some nuts here and there. So if there is omega need for omega for several reasons, omega-3, omega-6 pathway, we all know is needed in the body, but the omega-6 pathway is more inflammatory and coagulation, which is needed. You, you don't coagulate, you bleed. And omega-3 is the opposite direction. I'm simplifying, but that's basically it. And as we get older, we want to switch that pathway a little bit. And even in the young, especially very young, you want some omega-3 DHA for building of the anti-inflammatory as well as building the brain. You do need that. But you get plenty of that in, in the body. Our kids have been vegan and plant-based all, all their life. And do they get that mainly from whole foods or do they supplement like a DHA, EPA, algae oil supplement? And the second part of that question is we see fish oil tablets, you know, it's a huge industry. Are those helpful? Is there any science behind them? And what about vegetable oils? Starting from our kids, we eat a plant-based diet, but as children, it's not always perfect. And you want to have a varied diet, which includes a lot of nuts and seeds and sources of omega-3 fatty acids. So just to be on the safe side, we actually supplement. We take an algae-based omega-3 fatty acids on a regular basis. The studies that have come out from fish oil actually hasn't really shown any benefits for, for our brain health. Um, most of the clinical trials that have come out have been inconsistent, but we do know that omega-3 fatty acids is important for the brain. And um, because people live very you know, busy lives and they don't get to have a perfect diet, I think it's important for them to supplement with omega-3 fatty acids. Most people want absolute facts. We don't have the absolute facts here when it comes to children. We know that there's some correlation with kids that have taken omega DHA for in brain health. The quantity, we know a little bit, but beyond that, the data is not completely there. And, and, and my favorite thing is never to extrapolate beyond the data. Mm -hmm. Don't speak beyond what the data shows. So at the moment, it's a bit of an insurance policy. Yeah, it is an insurance policy and we take it, yes. And, and as far as fish oil, we're incredulous about because none of these supplements are overseen by FDA. They're not regulated, anything. So with fish and mercury and lead and PCB, PCBs, PCBs. All the chemicals that we dump in the ocean. Since 1940s, we've dumped more than 40,000 chemicals in the oceans and we check for how many? Two. So we kind of vie towards Yeah, and the, you can get the, the DHA, EPA, algae oil from like a farmed source. So it's not coming from the ocean. Correct. Correct. Exactly. So, so we just as an insurance and also as an insurance, we, we do B12 as well, just in case. Although the data shows that if you don't have B12 deficiency, there's no need to, to do anything else. Beyond that, for both adults and children, the data is non-existent. Okay. Is there any data in terms of a certain nutrient deficiency which would predispose someone yes. to Alzheimer's dementia? A lot. A lot. So if you have B12 deficiency, in fact, this is known. People who have B12 deficiency, they have neuropathy. They have cognitive deficits. They even get dementia. So all of that's been known with a B12 deficiency, not just B12 deficiency in the blood. So you could have a lot of B12 in your body, but your body's not utilizing it. So that's why a methylmalonic acid and, and all that. So is that, if you have one, like a genetic mutation, 
Correct. Yeah. Correct. Or you're not absorbing it well. And uh, that's, yeah. The other thing is vitamin D is a new one, which is the association is fairly strong. Data has to be better elucidated, but vitamin D deficiency and its correlation with MS, vitamin D deficiency and its correlation with axonal connections, and as well as myelin formation, as well as neuronal health has been shown. But if you have vitamin D deficiency, absolutely, there's a correlation with brain health or lack thereof. And, and most vitamin D, even if you're an omnivore, is coming from the sun, right? Like 80% or so. Right. Exactly. So your recommendation if someone's not getting sun is to have a vitamin D supplement? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Deficiency states are completely different. If you're deficient, at least until you know how to get your, your vitamins from your food, which is a better way. That's a whole different conversation as far as how your body actually understands the synergy of vitamins more important than, than pill form alone. Uh, we just published in our social media um, a whole study that showed that people who took pills did worse than people who didn't take pills and uh, versus people who actually got it from their food. So food form is important. So everybody should become a nutritionist and learn how to get food from, and not just, you know, if you just eat carrots, you're going to die. So abundance, right. diversity, abundance, abundance and diversity. Right. Exactly. Right. So that's important. The other thing that's a deficiency is B1, you know, uh, thiamine deficiency, mm -hmm. you know, Wernicke's Korsakoff, which is a dementia that alcoholics develop. But even beyond alcoholics, it's the fact that the thiamine is low. So when you have low thiamine levels, you have eye abnormalities as well as uh, cognitive decline in dementia. So, yeah, if you have a deficiency state, any of the B vitamins and D vitamin, you're going to have cognitive difficulties. That's why one of the things we say is check your levels and then supplement and then start learning about nutrition so you can switch from supplement to food because food is the best way to get your vitamins. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. For dementia and Alzheimer's, right? And, and brain health overall, aside from nutrition as a, as a lifestyle factor and a very important one, and maybe we can talk about the blue zones here, they also seem to have, you know, very meaningful connections with friends and family. They live a life of purpose. On top of that, what about mentally stimulating activities like reading a book or listening to a podcast? How does all of this also play into the reduction of risk of cognitive um, decline? We, we've, we've used the acronym. This is one of the little silly things we've done, but we, I think it's helpful. We, our acronym is NEURO, self-serving, but it's okay. N-E-U-R-O. N is for nutrition, E is for exercise, U is for unwind, which is about stress management, not stress reduction, actually increasing good stress. We'll talk about that. R is restorative sleep, not just sleep. You can knock people out, but if they don't go through the cycles, there's no benefit. And O, which is the most important, as much as my master's is in nutrition and hers and everything, Mental activity is the most protective thing for the brain. Challenging mental activity, those are the five elements. So there are certain lifestyle factors that provide the right kind of environment for the brain to grow and thrive. Nutrition provides the right environment for it. Stress management provides the right environment and sleep 
does that as well. Exercise and cognitive activity is what pushes the brain to make more connections. It actually provides the necessary environment for the brain cells to connect with each other. Now, neurons can make as little as two or three connections or as many as 30,000 connections. And these connections are what have been termed as cognitive resilience or cognitive reserve. It's like that money you put in your bank account for the rainy day. And people who do all of these things at the same time in a very comprehensive, multifaceted way are the most protected. And that's what you see in most of the blue zones. I saw you also posted, this is sort of a little side side note, but I saw you posted a study about fruit and vegetable consumption and depression. Yes. Yes. A lot of the drugs we have is almost like chemotherapy or older chemotherapy. So older chemotherapy was poison, right? So you gave poison to cells that reproduce rapidly and cells that reproduce rapidly are usually cancer cells. So you kill the cancer cells before you killed your own. That's why people lost hair and skin and all that stuff. So, but people don't realize that a lot of our other drugs for brain are also the same way. They're blunt, meaning that, for example, if antipsychotic drugs take away the dopamine or lower the dopamine level, not in a very specific way, although some of the newer ones go a little bit higher level of specificity, for example, one type of dopamine versus another type, but still it's blunt. So it's not only affecting that behavior, it's affecting all of brain. So there's almost no drug that you could be taking that affects that one particular disease and definitely no drug that actually reverses that disease process specifically. We're still using very blunt mechanisms. Okay. Every study has shown that exercise alone is three times more effective than any antidepressant for depression and anxiety. Why is nobody talking about this? No money to be made. Study after study, foods and its relationship with depression, as effective, if not more effective than some antidepressants. Why is there no cover of Time magazine that says, eat your berries? Because there's no money to be made. There was money to be made from butter, not from berries. So this is not a anomaly. The data is there out there uh, for everybody to see. So I'm not saying that we're against medicine. We're actually completely the opposite. When there is need for medicine, it should be there, but it should never be the way it is now, which is it's assumed that somebody who's put on blood pressure medicine, they're on it for the rest of their life. Let's take blood pressure medicines. Blood pressure medicines don't reverse disease. What they do is artificially keep the arteries open. Arteries that have become tighter and clogged because of lifestyle. You use one blood pressure medicine, which all keeps it open for a little bit, but you have done nothing for lifestyle, right? It's so so essentially the, a Band-Aid to allow you to continue to live the lifestyle. And worse than a Band-Aid. The damage is continuing because you didn't do anything for underlying lifestyle, right? So now, after a while, now you need two blood pressure medicines because you didn't do anything for underlying cause. So that keeps it open a little longer. And then after two years, three medicines. By then it's too late. The only way you should be doing this is if somebody comes in with high blood pressure, definitely high blood pressure medicine acutely. But lifestyle must be instituted because if you want to reverse some of this damage, that only that can actually reverse the disease process. Then slowly you take them off that. Same thing with antidepressants. We're not against it. If somebody's severely depressed, you put them on antidepressants. But if you don't bring in the lifestyle factors, which is even more than just exercise and nutrition, we're talking about socialization and all that and cognition, you're not doing any benefit. After a while, that medicine is not going to be enough. Then a third and a fourth, and then it's too late. 
So dyslexia, ADD, and a lot of other diagnoses are true, but overstated. They're definitely mm-hmm. true dyslexics mm-hmm. where they see the word in reverse and all of this stuff. They're, they're there, but it's a fraction of the number of people that claim dyslexia. They're just being lazy. I'm just kidding. Or bad spellers. <laughs> the bad speller. I would be one of those. I would definitely be one of them. I'm dyslexic speller. Uh, I go to Sophie and Alex for spelling. I know, really, I write something. I'm a pretty good writer. I write things and I say, I give it to Sophie and Alex and they edit me. So that's that. ADD is the same. ADD, ADHD. Mm-hmm. I mean, Simon, you're ADD. I mean, <laughs> everybody. It's a spectrum of behavior. That's so true. All men, especially men, hunter-gatherers, we're asked to then have a sugary meal in the morning, then go to a class with 35 other young men and sit there quietly for eight hours. Are you crazy? (laughs) Are they insane? So you think a lot of it is just like a misunderstanding. It is. Again, I say there are true ADDs. There are true ADHDs. They must be diagnosed. They must be treated. But even that's being overdone in the medical community because to hammer, everything is a nail. To a doctor, everything is a knife or a pill. And uh, like Adderall and... Uh, yeah, right, exactly. Right. I think that it's over. And, and, and a lot of that hyperactivity is actually creativity. A lot of the great creators in the world are hypomanic. You and I would be diagnosed with ADD. I would definitely be diagnosed with the ADD. And others would be uh, quite hypomanic, quite distracted at times. But I can... Clearly creative. By, by what's behind you. We <laughs> but, haven't even told the listeners what's going on in the Same thing with Aisha. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I know that you actually say that, you know, men, absolutely boys and men, but a lot of times women as well, especially when women. they have creative women, when they love dwelling and being present and partaking in multiple activities, you know, they actually get their energy from being involved in multiple things. Is that ADD? Absolutely not. No. So I think we need to redefine things. And as far as the clinical ADD conditions are concerned, like Dean said, yes, there are a lot of them. But, you know, when you go to a pediatric neurology clinic and they bring their children and they say, I I think my child has ADD. The first thing that needs to be done is to assess their life. Mm. You know, what's really going on? How do they learn? How do they sit? How do they process information around them? Because everybody's different. Because it can, it can almost become a limiting diagnosis, right? Yes. Yeah. And, yes. And, and one of our, as human beings, one of our fallback or default networks or default is, is surrender mm-hmm. because it's actually comforting. I mean, if you have to organize all this sound system and go travel around the world, it's a lot of, I was going to say, use the explosion. I'm from Pittsburgh. I can use that. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of work. But to say, I have dyslexia and I can't do it. Okay, there it is. I'm not blaming people. I'm actually completely the opposite. I'm hoping that it empowers people. If you do have those diagnoses, it should be diagnosed. It should be treated. It should be treated aggressively. But mm-hmm. make sure that you get a second opinion. Make sure that you see that there's other ways around it potentially. Yeah. Um, food, exercise. We know that for anxiety and, and a lot of these uh, uh, emotional activity disorders, Exercise has been shown to be significantly better than medication. I mean, the medications we have for depression and anxiety, they work. We're not against medicine. Right. We are doctors. But the way we approach medicine in, 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 in the medical community is very blunt. Somebody has, as soon as you get a sense somebody has something, throw medicine because it feels good for us. If we don't, if we send a patient out of the door without a pill, it is the most dissatisfying feeling for us and the patients. Study showed patients who had said that they didn't like medicine, 
But then when they left the doctor and the doctor that gave them a medicine and the doctor that didn't give a medicine, and we're talking about a larger study, guess who got the higher score? The one that gave the medicine. It's that powerful. It's become that powerful. We're not against medicine. Medicine, it's the right place, right time and right duration, right. not for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of other things you can do. We started with dyslexia. Maybe my, my conversation is dyslexic and <laughs> ADD there. But we went to the exercise, nutrition, focus uh, habits, b- habit building. So mm. finding out the structure of environment that might be affecting exactly your all those things should be done before you throw a blunt medicine. <laughs> Here's the arrogance of the, no, it's not arrogance, actually, it's ignorance. Well, mixed. Where you know for a fact, well, the pharmaceuticals know and, and, and others know that the medicines we have now for cognitive diseases are blunt. They're like chemotherapy. We haven't developed the level of specificity. Yeah, for, for like antipsychotics, D2 versus D3, D4, but that's still not specific. So a lot of times what they are is sponge medicines or a lot of antipsychotics. They just take the dopamine out. So it's just a dampener. It's a yeah, dampener. Very blunt approach. Yeah. In fact, they leave other symptoms like Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Why? Because Parkinson's movement requires dopamine. So if you take the dopamine away, you get Parkinsonian symptoms. Same thing with antidepressants. Same times with anti-anxiety medicines. They just affect serotonin bluntly. Now, somebody in the audience is going to come and send some mm-hmm. uh, receptor information and so on and so forth. No, they are still not specific for depression because in order to say that it is specific, we have to know how the different types of depression, anxiety, ADD, and others are different types are affected molecular level and, and neurotransmitter levels. And we don't have mm-hmm. that yet. So what we say is lifestyle should be your first if, if you have the time, you know, if you have a blood pressure of 200, lifestyle is not going to do it. Use the bad medicine for short term, lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're not shaming anyone for taking not it. A, never, you're, not never. A, you're speaking to the importance of a holistic approach. Absolutely. Addressing yeah. lifestyle Absolutely. There are two kinds of things, brain reserve and cognitive reserve. Not like there's these things that were written in a book, but th- that's how we've defined them. So brain reserve, as I say it or we say it is, what you are left with after the first few years of life. Your brain develops incredibly fast in the first nine months pre, pre-birth, right? The, during the, this being Mother's Day, we should definitely appreciate the power of, mm-hmm. of women and mothers. That, and, and, and this should be a woman-centered, mother-centered wor- world and universe. Absolutely. And, and uh, there's a whole neurology behind that. We'll, we'll get to it. But this brain develops massively. So the food that you give it, the environment, the, the sounds, the, the amount of activity, the stimulants you take, the alcohol, you take, all cigarettes, all these affect that intrauteral development. We're talking about in the first, by the time it's born, 50% of neurons are already in place. And everything you do affects it. And, and we take it lightly. Then the first three years, 80% of neurons are developed. And in the first five years, 50% of the, 90% of the, the, the neurons altogether. And then the connections. And then the, the architecture of it, how they're connected to each other and all of that. Part of that is genetics, but part of that is environment. We talk about that. We, we talk about that in our book about the children and how to raise children and all of that. Because what you do in those first five years determines what you laid down as far as structure in the brain. What's interesting is you actually develop more neurons by the age six, seven, and then there's what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death. There's a dying back. So it shrinks back. Shrinks back. So what then what's left behind is what you're 
what, what you live with for the rest of your life. What determines that shrinking back? Part of it, again, genetics. Part of it, environment. People who are in environments where there's no sound, that part of the brain just shrinks. So use it or lose it. Yes. Yeah. And, and then it's not, yeah, it's not just use it, how you use it, how you organize attention at that age. So nowadays we have very simplistic conversation. Video games are good or bad? Binary. No. The answer is C, both, depending on what type, what type of stimulus, what type of information. Does it build focus? Does it build visuospatial capacity? Does it build cognitive capacity? So what happens in those years determine the connectivity, the number of cells, as well as the dying back and the ultimate infrastructure that's left behind. One story, which, which is difficult to corroborate, but kind of speaks to this is Einstein. Einstein supposedly didn't speak till age four, but supposedly he was very thoughtful and he would be in deep thought even in the first few years. So the part of the brain that was not developed well was the language, but the part that was developed well was the imagination part. Of course, this is a simplistic statement, but that speaks to our ability to build that area of the brain or all areas of the brain more systematically. And what do we do now? We don't do any of that. And that's the future. That's where you can actually develop cognitive capacity for your kids significantly more. One thing we say is we don't want to extrapolate beyond the data. So don't overstate things, you know. So we know that that capacity is there. And I think we've tapped into some of that and, 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 and others have as well. But how much we just have to see in the next decade or so. The brain works in a beautiful, harmonious way with each other. There are particular parts of the brain that are responsible for a major function. Like for example, there's been a lot of studies on functional MRI studies and structural MRI studies that show that the part of the brain that is responsible for focus and attention is incredibly important for developing that cognitive capacity that everybody talks about, the cognitive reserve. So, so Dean talked about brain reserve. Cognitive reserve is what you do after your childhood, what you do on top of that brain reserve that you're left with during childhood. And that is a day-to-day -day effort on our part of what we do to build that capacity. So the insular cortex is responsible for focus and attention. The anterior cingulate cortex is very important. Those two areas have been studied. And, you know, examples are they've done functional MRI studies on expert meditators, people who meditate uh, on a regular basis. And they've seen that they actually have a thicker cortex in those areas compared to those who don't. And there's more blood flow and there's more activity in those areas of the brain when you try to focus and attend to something. And Yundin and I always say focus and attention is the gateway to memory. And if you build that area, if you know specific techniques that you can consistently repeat every day, you're going to have better memory. And it has been, it has been shown in different studies. As, as a personal, we'll get to other areas, but I love the fact that Aisha brilliantly focused on focus. That's where we start. Imagine being in a room with nobody around, no sound, no nothing, but yet you have complete clarity of an object in front of you. In fact, everybody in the audience can, can actually, I want them to experience this. We might not be able to achieve that, but I want, and imagine a very complex object in front of you. Now, take out all the noise, take out all the visual sound, everything, and focus on that. Bring it to real, to, the, to, to existence, three-dimensionally, in front of you. Touch it, feel it, experience the grooves. That level of clarity actually goes away as we get older because more and more layers of noise add up. 
and the part of the brain that's responsible, we don't work on it, it actually atrophies. So double jeopardy, I mean, there. So imagine now truly experiencing that object, which you haven't done for years. Now, imagine transferring that concept of that level of clarity to every conversation. You know, people use these soft things. I mean, nowadays there are like memes a day on internet and everything, you know, be present. I mean, my God, how many times have I seen be present? I mean, what does that mean? It's physically? a bit of a throwaway. It line. is, it is. What does that mean neurologically? Mm-hmm. Being present means building that part of the brain where you can focus independent of other things on that object, on that conversation, on that person and its totality. And then it's like three-dimensional chess. A good chess player can do five, six moves. A great chess player can actually play 10 games at once because they can visualize each of the games or each of the starts. We have that capacity. We all do. There's a journalist that wanted to see this competition on memory. Again, the reason I'm talking about memory, but it's again, focus. And he went to Europe. There's a big competitions in Europe on memory. And he learned the techniques, came back, became memory champion in the United States. He's written a well-written book. But the level of memory that he developed and the level of focus that he developed is bewilderingly what he started. And anybody can do that. So talk to me. Is the idea there that the greater clarity you get and the more that you can remove the noise and focus in on something, the easier it will be to store that and recall it? Absolutely. And, And now there are two kinds of processes in the brain. One is active, where you're actually doing things. One is passive, which is subcortical or reflex or habit. Now, most of our activities, almost all of our thinking is habit. Even your political views are habit. You think it's not. No, (laughs) you know, the the free will experiments with fMRI shows that a lot of the thought process happened and then you take ownership afterwards. So, (laughs) so a lot of your political, the the trigger is laid and then you just follow and, 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 and so we do a lot of subcortical, and there's a reason for that. The brain wants to conserve energy. And, you know, if there was a, a bush there and a tiger, it didn't want to do the philosophical thinking, whether this is tiger or bush, or should I even call, talk with it? It just wants to run. So it wants to have reflexive behavior. So a lot of what we do is reflexive behavior. Now, we can go to the cortex and think, but if you, and, and most of our reflexive behavior, <laughs> habits are laid down in our teenage years and before. So when I give talks and we give talks and Aisha says it beautifully, says, really, you want to rely on your teenage habits? Let's reprogram. So it's about reprogramming. It's about reprogramming those habits so that when the concept of being focused is not thought about every time, it becomes exhaustive to rethink. If you repeat it, if you get good at it, and some of it is meditation, some of it mindfulness, but it's a little more than that. I don't, I, people even get caught up in these, you know, these little apps where they make them go sit in three minutes and millions of people are sitting there for three minutes and they're not doing much. They're just feeling more relaxed. But deeper and deeper levels of focus is what we can achieve. That's the whole point. And once this becomes a habit, you're sitting in a conversation and it triggers that. And you're sitting in a, you know, in a, in a, in a meeting that would 20 people there. And the focus is triggered naturally, reflexively, subcortically, without you having to, you know, do a whole- Put in an effort. Put in an effort. It's a great point because there's a lot of emphasis, as you said, on this being present, right? Mm -hmm. And meditation and certainly meditation obviously has a lot of benefits, right? But if, if you're getting present during a meditation, how well does that then translate over to things that you're doing every day when there's a lot of noise and you're, as you said, you're at work, you're in a meeting. 
Exactly. Exactly. I think it comes down to building, building that habit of being quote unquote present, you know, making it a part and parcel of your existence. And I think for people who are not used to it or who want to change their brain structure and function to, uh, to, to the point where it comes easy and it comes, you know, second nature for them. I think the best thing to do is to, first of all, change your environment to help you initiate that behavior, to slowly and gradually build those pathways in the brain where you are focused and attentive to any particular activity. And if you're not, it's going to affect everything. Forget about memory, forget about cognition. You know, you're trying to go to the kitchen to do something and halfway there, you forgot what you were doing. That's common and becomes more common as you get older, not because you have Alzheimer's. It's because the focus centers are getting affected. So why is that happening? Because that information of what I'm supposed to do in the kitchen was not put in the right folder file and cabinet because you weren't focusing on it to put it in. When you're younger, that focus is natural. When you're older, there's so much noise out there. The kids, the even without you thinking, all that noise is out there and it doesn't allow it. So building that. And, and building it, not just for that, but for everything is central. Then that, that was just focus. And if you can build focus, we know that a lot of the chess champions, I'm going to use chess, as I love chess, and so, uh, a lot of, are not super geniuses. They have learned to develop higher levels of focus. Now, the next thing is memory. But memory is not just memory. It's short-term memory and long-term memory. Why is it people say, oh, my long-term memory is fine. In fact, when people lose short-term memory, their long-term memory becomes better because it's almost like that thing where if somebody loses a sense, the other gets better. It's heightened. It heightened. Yeah, wow. The short-term memory is in a very, we're going to simplify it, but is in a very tenuous little spot. It's the size of your thumb on two sides of the head, you know, temporal lobe. And it's also tenuous because it's vascular supplies tenuous and lots of other things. A lot of things can affect this. A lot of things can affect Very sensitive to the environment. The short-term memory. Short-term memory, yeah. Or the center that's responsible for short-term memory. And And can it fluctuate a lot? It does. Oh, absolutely. Everything can affect it. On a daily basis. By the the minute. By the minute, like sleep. Lots of studies that if a person didn't even get one hour or got one hour less restorative sleep, they did significantly worse. Not just one person. We're talking about larger studies. Um, the, the next morning. So f- uh, sleep, uh, and lots of stuff can affect it. And also uh, just being being a vascular neurologist, the blood supply to that part of the brain yes. is so tenuous. If somebody has, say, for example, poor heart beating or some sort of an arrhythmia or maybe narrowing of the blood vessels to that brain, structurally, it might look fine. But if it's not getting perfused properly, there's fluctuation yeah. in memory. Let's throw some titillation, saturated fat. And, and <laughs> I it's, think we talked it's about ability that. to shrink the, you know, or collapse the vessels. Yes. Not just clogging it, but collapsing because of nitric oxide. All of that stuff can affect the brain. Well, I want to come back to that because (laughs) one thing that is touted as being this amazing thing for focus is this whole ketogenic diet and MCT oil Mm -hmm. and and they're they're saturated fat. So let's come back to that. Absolutely. I have a question about memory. When does something go from a short-term memory or can it move from short-term to a long-term memory? Like, for example, if I'm studying six months and have a big examination coming up, when can it move from, I guess, like a short-term memory into another area of the brain where it's something that I have have stored more deeply that I can recall? Absolutely. So let's divide that into several components. One is temporal. You start actually recording it after you repeat repeat and emotionally connect. We call it ACEs. You know, attend, 
concentrate and connect and emotionally connect. So the, the memories that you have that, that were most vivid and they were meaningless, but there was an emotional connection to it. You remembered more because the emotion connects it stronger. So that's a, there's a clue on what you can do. So attend, connect by meaning, by, by some weird stuff, and then emotionally connect. And that exponentially increases your ability to memorize it. Now, the other part that is over time, repetition helps because it just connect, makes those both as far as axonal connections, as well as, as well as the proteins within the cells and sleep temporarily. Yeah. Sleep, one of the main purposes of sleep is to do just that, is to organize, lay down the memories, get rid of the bad memories. In fact, they're, they're microglia, these, these garbage disposal cells. Janitor you, you did cells. This, uh, That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. They're the cute cells or the very, very important cells. They're Microglia. Cute cells. Yes, we need them. They're they're highly active. They're, they're only basically... neurologists would call a cell cute. But... <laughs> I love microglia. Um, is that what they do or the way they look? What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> they are quite active. They um, have different functions, but one of the ma- most important functions that they have is to clean the brain. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it very simply. They're also called the janitor cells. So when we sleep, these microglia, you know, we sleep, but the brain doesn't sleep. These microglia get activated. And what they do is they go around the brain and they get rid of the broken parts of the brain or the unnecessary garbage. Or the inflammation. Or the inflammation. And they kind of just prune out and clean out the brain so that it's ready for the next day. And now these microglia, they sometimes they go nuts. When people don't sleep, when they are deprived of sleep or they have a broken sleep architecture, these microglia don't have the capacity to differentiate between good brain cells and bad brain cells. So what he does is it actually starts going and eating away the good parts of the brain. And that is why in a lot of studies, they've seen that people who have very bad sleep patterns, they actually have a smaller brain. So the microglia actually yes. contributes to the shrinkage of the brain. That's incredible. Yeah. And you mentioned the, the, the sort of type of sleep pattern, right? And, and we hear about REM and, and deep sleep and things like that. Can you maybe just go through those various phases of sleep and when that process occurs that you're talking about? So there are four phases of sleep plus REM. And the first phase is basically people trying to get to sleep. And, and that's an important phase because as we get older, that becomes poor, mm-hmm. that becomes affected. So we have to use techniques. We, we can't become, we have to become an active participant in our own health, especially sleep, you know, sleep hygiene and all these other things that we usually talk about. But that part is effective. Then second phase, third phase, fourth phase. All of these have different EEG patterns, alpha, beta, delta, and all that. And the deepest level of, of sleep. So you get away from alpha and get to deeper levels of sleep. And at those deeper levels, you're paralyzed. Now, I want people to realize how important sleep is. I mean, we keep saying, a lot of times we just throw things out. Sleep is important. And, and, and just, uh, sorry to interrupt, but it's a bit of a myth, right? People think that when, when you're asleep, your brain just switches off, right? But what you're talking about is it's Not highly active. All. It's more active during sleep in many ways, exactly. in many ways. And that was in the book, Superman model. Yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it does. They listen to our talks, right? They go to every talk. So, so when you go to sleep, it's, it's critical that you, people understand how important it is. I mean, evolution sacrificed eight hours of your day where you're paralyzed, you can't move. There are actually syndromes where you wake up early 
and the brain has a little uh, uh, short circuit and you pay, wake up paralyzed. And this, this is incredibly panic-driven, panic-creating uh, situation. Uh, hypnagogic hallucinations and all these things where you paralyze. So you go paralyzed and you're out. Why would evolution have created What's this? What's the name for that? Is, uh, there, is there a name? Yeah, yeah. so hypno- there's a lot of different kinds of syndrome. Hypnagogic hallucinations is one of them. I think I've had that once before. <laughs> people <laughs> have I think people do. Oh, have people do. Yes. People do. I'm, I, almost everybody has it once. And it's incredibly panic. Uh, it's scary. It is. Remember, it, is. Yeah. it is. So you're paralyzed. Why would we have put this eight hours, one third of your day into this uh, very um, uh, dangerous situation, right? Why? Uh, you're you're susceptible to everything, bears, tigers, you know, Fire. because it's that important. Mm-hmm. The brain needed rest. The brain needs restoration. The brain needs rejuvenation mm-hmm. and, and cleansing. That's why we call it restorative sleep, not just sleep. I can knock anybody out. Poor Michael Jackson was knocked out with propofol. Yet because of that sleep deprivation, he got eight hours of sleep, nine, 10 hours, but he was sleep deprived because he wasn't allowed to go through those cycles and deep cycles, a lot of the drugs actually affect the architecture that Aisha was talking about, underlying architecture of sleep. And, it, it, and then they don't get deep sleep. The microglia go nuts. The focus centers are destroyed. And it's, it's absolute havoc. Forget about dopamine and serotonin. That's why depression, anxiety, eating disorders and sleep, all of it is affected. So, so talk to me, a lot of people probably go to bed at a certain time and yes. wake up at a certain time and just assume that they're getting enough sleep, right? What you're talking about is there's a difference between the, the duration and the quality. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, and there's, there's a lot of technology now coming out, whether the wristbands or rings, are, they, are these accurate in terms of giving you insight into are you reaching these various stages of sleep? Unfortunately, they're not. Um, some of them are more accurate than others, but they're all based on a device that measures movement. And lack of movement does not necessarily mean reaching those deeper stages of sleep. So we're hoping to, you know, have certain devices that can actually measure the depth of sleep. Uh, but at this point, none of them are. And the duration of sleep, you know, from different studies, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep is very important, but I think quality is more important than quantity. And in in our patient populations, knowing if they have any type of sleep disorder, such as sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, or even not being able to go to sleep, reach the deeper stages of sleep, such as, you know, different types of insomnia is, is incredibly important. And there are tests that you can do and go to a sleep lab and get assessed for that. And there are m- multiple treatments for it too, like cognitive behavioral therapy, assessing what goes on before the person goes to sleep, the type of foods that they eat, the kind of activities they do during the life. So a very complex thing that needs to be addressed. We're doing the largest study in the nation right now on sleep and cognition with the, in Loma Linda um, on a thousand people and looking at, we're talking about electrophysiological evidence of sleep disorders, not just sleep apnea, even if their EEG is abnormal, looking at that's in relation with cognition. So hopefully in, in, a, in about a year, we'll have a data on that. Super excited about that study. Yes. Wow. So for, for the listeners, right, who perhaps they don't feel the need to go and get the certain testing done, but they perhaps are having issues with focus, right? What can they do? What are the, what's the checklist to go through to determine if perhaps sleep is an issue? 
so the 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 checklist that they can can make for themselves is first of all to find out whether they have latency falling asleep. Do they when they go to bed, when they hit their head on the pillow, how long does it take for them to go to sleep? I think that's very important because that in itself is a type of a disorder that needs to be addressed. And then, you know, do they wake up multiple times at night, even if it's briefly? And if they wake up, do can they go back to sleep? And what time do they wake up? And when they wake up, do they feel refreshed or not? Do they have mild headaches? Do they have blurred vision? Does it take them about, you know, more than an hour or so to get back to their baseline and start functioning? Now, all of those things need to need to be focused on. And, you know, there's so many different things. I think I can go on and on for about an hour just on sleep because sleep hygiene is, is a very particular field and there are multiple elements. But I think a quick point of reference would be, do you feel refreshed when you wake up? Sure. And how many times do you wake you up? You mentioned falling asleep what mm-hmm. what is the sort of ideal amount of time that it should take you from when you get into bed to the time that you're asleep? It shouldn't take you more than 10 minutes to fall asleep. If it does take you longer, then it has to be addressed. Now I have to interject here. <laughs> Somebody's jealous of somebody else's yes. sleep pattern. <laughs> so Aisha, literally a minute. And me, yeah, yeah, me, it takes me about 20 minutes and the whole 20 minutes I'm looking at her angrily <laughs> and saying, how is it possible that somebody could just go, go out like that? <laughs> varies, varies from person to person, right. but about 10 to 15 minutes or so is, is the most. If you're having difficulty now, here's a critical thing. I, there's so much about sleep we can talk, uh, but one thing is don't make sleep, don't associate sleep with thinking. Mm. So that's why don't bring your computer into the room. Don't bring your phone for many reasons, blue light and all of that stuff. And more importantly, if you're starting to worry in bed, get up, go sit in a chair, do your worrying there, have a notepad. One of the best things to get rid of is write the idea down, put it subconsciously. It actually parks the idea. Parks the worry. So it takes away that anxiety. Exactly. And, and in many ways, this is actually creating a habit where you're separating the time for sleep from 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 time for thinking and doing anything the else. There's so much overlap between the two. We actually take our life and our thinking and our activities to bed, and that's that's the worst thing I mean, that anybody I, can. I do. don't. Th- I think a lot of people probably don't really take sleep that seriously they don't. in terms of planning for they don't. it or prepping for it or sleep hygiene. It's just sort of you know it's something that we do, and you just. You don't really go into a whole lot of thought about preparing for it and optimizing it. Yes. I I would say we've been invited to many retreats and many spas and things of that nature. Everybody should just invest on their sleep spa. Make your bedroom your ultimate spa. That it's a lot cheaper, first of all. So here are the three components of sleep hygiene, nutrition, environment, behavior. Nutrition is what foods to eat what foods not to eat, and the timing of food. Meaning that when you're younger, you can eat two minutes before eating. You know, I, I used to play t- soccer, tennis. Before the, I would, you know, eat a whole big sandwich right before sleep and I would be out. When you're older, that's not the case. You're going to need to separate the time from sleep a little further because your stomach is still digesting it. It gets slower. Although you're not hearing the sounds, but the body is active. So what are we talking like a, a couple, couple hours? A couple hours, a yeah. couple hours, yes. So food, the foods to eat and foods not to eat, Aisha will speak to that. I mean, of course, the obvious one is caffeine and chocolate and things that don't, that, that's going to stimulate you. 
the other ones are sugar and sugar and a lot of oily food. When yeah. we eat a lot of oily, you know, high fat food, our body starts secreting digestive enzymes. And these digestive enzymes are in many ways stimulants. It circulates in your body and it keeps you awake. Like Dean said, you might not hear your your gut, you know, at all while you're digesting the food, but it just kind of revs up your energy. And that's the worst thing you can do before sleep. Yeah. And the foods to eat are more carbs and complex carbs. Exactly. So fruits, okay. When you're talking about sugar, you're talking about refined sugars? Correct. Correct. Yes, correct. absolutely. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Fruits are great. Um, usually a high carb, uh, relatively high carb, high fiber food is excellent because it um, slowly and gradually releases glucose. So your body's not in any starvation mode, but at the same time, it actually helps you sleep. And there are a lot of foods that have tyrosine and tryptophan and the amino acids that can stimulate sleep. Like oatmeal is a good one or Bananas are great. Pistachios are amazing because they have melatonin. So certain foods actually help you fall asleep better. The second thing is environment. So environment is light, sound, temperature. So let's start with temperature. It's got to be lower than your body's temperature. So that's, 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 uh, and, and with women and men, there's a different set point. I know not, it's not ubiquitous. It's not universal, but in general, women like it a little hotter, men like it a little colder. Then, then that's always a conflict, point of conflict. And always the women win. Same in my house. Yes, yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm complaining a lot, but she's lovely. We're, we're good. (laughs) But why is that? Like, why do, why do men tend to, do they, do they run hotter or? Multiple variables. If you, if you're a little overweight, you know, I, I injured myself, so I've gained a little weight now. And, and, and that's, a, a, that's a factor because your body's more met- metabolically active. And women's hormones, men's hormones, that, this different kind of things, multiple variables. Light matters. Do an experiment on yourself. You're sleepy, turn on your phone, well, not something stimulating, and then try to go to sleep. You'll see that your sleep is affected immediately. Mm-hmm. That's something that I've noticed and others have noticed that it's not just blue light. So, th- so getting rid of light and making your room as dark as possible, as dark as possible. I, and I know for, for, the, for those who need to get up, having a side light and all of that, or maybe automatically turning it on. And when you do get up, don't turn all the room lights on because that's going to stimulate your circadian clock. So you're going to think that you have to be awake. So warm lights uh, to get you get up from bed. Because when you get up, are you then having to go back through all those phases of sleep again? To get- you can, yes. as long as the light is not stimulated so that you don't fully wake up. So, so that's, that's a fact. But is that like a, a step? It is. Get, so stepwise, you've got to go down through each stage. Yeah, absolutely. You do. Yeah. Yeah. You, do. you do that multiple times a night anyway, so that's okay. The, the other one is sound make the room as soundproof as possible. And and by just doing that, you've actually significantly helped your sleep pattern. That's tough in Manhattan, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Last week, yeah. It's, it's a nearly impossible. <laughs> it it's is. nearly it impossible, is. yeah. Then the other one is behavior. Behavior is one of them I gave, we gave clues on, which is if you're thinking in bed, don't. Get up, get a chair next to your bed. You get up and do five minutes there and go back to bed. Because once you start associating your bed with thoughts... Then it becomes, as soon as you get into bed, all these running thoughts and becomes habitual. And the other habit is go to bed same time, wake up eight hours later, same time. And even if you haven't had good night's sleep, unless you're driving or something, don't take too many naps because then you're not allowed to re- mm. recalibrate. That's what I was going to ask you about the siesta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The yeah. siesta is, uh, usually it's not necessary. If you're getting deep sleep eight hours a day or seven to eight hours a day, your body doesn't need it. In fact, studies show that people who sleep nine hours or more are more sick. You don't need to sleep nine hours unless 
those first eight hours or those eight hours did not give you the restorative sleep. So you got to check why is it that you need more sleep? Yeah. Those power naps that people talk about, I mean, they are... They're usually done in circumstances when somebody's really tired. So why are people tired? Why is it that they can't get that sleep during night? That's the question that they should ask themselves. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. For the listeners, if you were to summarize what a, a healthy sort of daily brain routine looks like to really tap into the potential and and the possibilities of what their brain can perform and help them achieve, what would that look like? So it starts at night. It starts the night before. And and like I said, a quiet, cooler, dark room and a routine that you go into bed and wake up in the morning. Uh, and as soon as you get up in the morning, uh, getting up and doing a morning brisk walk in, in the light, um, because that resets the circadian clock. So your melatonin is naturally yeah, yeah, stimulated and and your energy levels are naturally re recalibrated and and that's important when you get exposed to daylight first thing in the morning when the sunshine hits your eye that's when the natural form of melatonin is secreted and that actually sets your sleep for the night yes so that's the most important thing you need to do yes it's good to have a dark bedroom but pull those those curtains and expose yourself to sunlight the first thing in the morning correct and then then the the brisk walk Harvard study showed that 20 minutes of brisk walk reduces your chance of Alzheimer's. Whenever we say Alzheimer's, that's the end stage, that's the worst. But all the other cognitive processes, the damage is included in that, right? We forget, even if you don't, we're talking about slowing of cognition and all, reduced by 45% by daily brisk walk. So that morning brisk walk is probably the best thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Then a great breakfast. A whole food, a whole food plant-based mm. uh, breakfast because... For, for various reasons. First of all, it's the best thing that you can do for your brain to give it the right nutrients, a plant-based nutrient. But also, if you make a decision to eat the healthiest meat in the morning, you're more bound to eat healthier during the day because you've just had a beautiful start. Yes. Then meditation or mindfulness. I mean, it doesn't have to be crossing your legs and, you know, any, anything like that, which is fine. I love that. But um, uh, the, the ability to build that habit of focus building. Imagine you had a walk, you had breakfast, great breakfast. Now set the brain in the right direction by this habit of higher focus. So you're, you're initially you start with three minutes in the morning and, and people say, oh, I'm terrible at, my, at meditation because I can't focus more than six seconds. Well, that's the whole point. Every time you re-trigger and come back to focus, you're actually building the muscle of focus. It's like a biceps curl for the brain. Yeah. So increase that focus. Six seconds, seven seconds, eight seconds. To the point that, you know, I have, a, I have an 83-year-old gentleman who's following me, who's actually flying from Northern California to see me every few months. He is now doing 30 minutes of deep, deep focus. And he's sharper than any human being you can Im ever imagine. So now you've set the day as far as focus and attention is concerned. Second, next is, believe in me or not, organization, you know, a whiteboard, a board. We invest in so many things, but the simple thing, visually organize 
the pathways of action with a specific purpose-driven goal at the end. So that actually sets your day. And every time you create a success around nutrition, exercise, neuro, uh, you know, uh, stress management, sleep, and optimizing mental activity, you've built a brain. And those checklists and check marks actually serve as a positive affirmation. The fact that you see your success in front of you every single day and no clutter and distraction around you is, is like medicine. And it actually builds that habit pathway. The habit pathways are actually subcortical. They're actually highways, white matter, the, the pathways in this uh, basal ganglia. Now, like I said, they are set during your teenage years with teenage habits. We have a couple, they're good kids, but their teenagers are teenagers. Resetting them in positive way, right? So now that's, that's the pattern creation with the whiteboard or whatever you do. Then lunch. Again, whole food, plant-based. Again, I'm making sure that you get the carbs so that you have an even keel release of sugar instead of this high, you know, high glycemic peaks. Um, and get rid of fats, uh, especially saturated fats. Absolutely. Because, you know, forget about brain. It's going to clog the way to the brain. Uh, so, so that's another thing. And those, those high glycemic sort of the, the spice that you talk about. Exactly. With the, with the refined sugar, that's just going to shorten your attention span. Absolutely. Very true. Absolutely. And after lunch, what we do is another session of meditation, shorter. But again, bringing the mind back to focus. And then, and we've actually reduced caffeine as we get older. Well, she doesn't get older. I get older. Uh, the, the caffeine caffeine starts affecting you a little differently. So before I could drink coffee right before sleep and I would be out. Now, if I'm mm-hmm. eating, drinking past two o'clock, it's going to affect me. Mm-hmm. Most people are not actually aware of that. See if that effect is there. So we reduce that. And then again, from then on, one other meditation or mindfulness session we do is at night. We do exercise earlier in the day before five o'clock because you don't want to be revved up. And most of what we do is in, in front of the, you know, in, in the living space. Everything we do is living space. So making, because it's more likely to happen. And, and also we want to build that habit in our kids. So that's what we do. Making sure you drink water. I mean, there, you know, when we used to work in Beverly Hills, everybody would come with the detox of the day detox this and detox that. And I think the most important detox are two. One is sleep. We talked about that. And the second one is water. You need water for the different chemical processes in your body and dehydration, even at a, at a lower level can actually cause confusion. So making sure you're well hydrated is important. Another re- very common reason for the fog mm-hmm. is dehydration and, and or lower uh, fluid level in your body. So yeah, rehydrate yourself with water. So it sounds like these are daily habits that you bring into your lifestyle. You keep them consistent and then over time you'll be able to learn and challenge yourself more and more and build build essentially build your brain stronger. Absolutely. Yeah. And one outside of the box thing, we always say do one courageous thing. Courageous doesn't mean physical. I and mean, we're talking about one thing that challenges your mind outside of the norm that that takes you outside of the comfort zone. One thing and and uh, you know we say one social, one cognitive, one behavioral. That's not for some catchy little show or something. It's for your ability to release the full power of the brain. We keep that beast in a cage that we don't even see. The only way you can release that full capacity is by creating the habit of release. And the outcome is not as important as letting the beast out of the cage. That's, yeah. a, that's a book right there. there Let the go. beast out. There that's you right. go. Stroke is essentially the second leading cause of death in the entire world. And about 5.5 million 
deaths are attributed to stroke in, in, in the world. And like Dean said earlier, you know, the numbers are just crazy in the United States, you know, more than 800,000 people and every three and a half minutes, somebody dies from a stroke, which is crazy. Close to about 410 people dying of stroke every single day. And what's, what's the average age? So I know that the pathology starts over many years, mm-hmm. decades, you know, yes. from, from one's lifestyle, but when are these events occurring usually? Up to 55 men and women are equal. Yeah. And then after 55, men have disproportionately higher proclivity yeah. for is that, strokes. Is that because of certain things like blood pressure or? Correct. Correct. We're still trying to understand that whether, you know, estrogen in women seems to have any protective effect at that later years. Um, but it seems that men have more vascular risk factors than women mm. and end up having more strokes. But then after age 75, again, they, the risk actually becomes the same for men and women. So that many people are dying every three and a half minutes um, every year. The yeah. numbers you said, they're pretty huge. It's it the is. second leading cause of death in the world. Yes. But the other aspect is the ones that, that don't die are severely disabled, right? right? So like talk me through that. What is one's life or what can one's life look like? How does this impact, you know, the average person who has a stroke? It's horrible. So stroke is the most debilitating disease in the world, which essentially means that the quality of life or the disability adjusted life years are far worse than any other disease. You have individuals coming in They're completely fine. And within minutes, they lose all functionalities. So the cost of not just medication and hospitalization, but the cost of taking care of these individuals after they have a stroke is enormous. It was close to about $70 billion only in the United States. And this is a country where we have resources for individuals with stroke. And think about all the other countries that don't provide any resources for these individuals. I, I just got done with, you know, reading some of the papers that came out from the International Stroke Conference, which was, you know, just a couple of uh, last week, actually. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on acute stroke care, a lot of grants that support identification of stroke as soon as possible, um, making sure that the door to needle time, the door to needle time basically means the time when the patient is actually brought into the emergency and how fast do the nurse practitioners and doctors attend to that physician. That's and because how- there's there's a lack of oxygen to the brain Agreed. and, like, and, and yes. the more time, more cell death. Yes. And so the motto is time is brain. So every mm. second spent is is brain damage. So there is this incredible amount of urgency during that stage. And the door to needle time, needle meaning TPA or administration of the clot busting medication should be as short as possible. And all of the comprehensive stroke centers are trying to focus on keeping it less than 60 minutes. So a lot of money spent there, a lot of money spent on grant supporting ambulatory TPA administration. So ambulance is giving TPA before they even get to the uh, emergency realm. A lot of um, support for endovascular therapy, which means, you know, going through the groin with a needle and retrieving the clot mechanically if it's too late for them to get a TP or if there's any other contraindication. So all of this focus there for what? Basically for making sure that the patient stays alive. And I wish that there were enough resources and enough attention on making sure that prevention is also mm. prioritized as much as this, possible. Uh, like when I was doing a bit of research to address this in my book quickly on when I talked about stroke, 
in Australia, if you look at the deaths from stroke, like they they are actually have come down since 1980. So yes. it kind of speaks to your point right. that like Western medicine has become good at perhaps helping lower the deaths a little bit, even though they're still huge. Absolutely. But keeping people alive with this very debilitating disease. And we're almost missing the point that it comes back to sort of health span versus mm-hmm. lifespan. Yeah. Yes. You know, so keeping people alive, but what's their quality of life like? Right, yeah. right. No, the, the mortality rates have come down by 36% since 2010, which means that less people are dying, like you said. But the number of people having strokes and the prevalence of stroke is actually increasing. So we have more people mm. left with debilitating um, stroke symptoms but yet they're not dying because we're doing a really, really good job at keeping them alive. Eating um, lots of fruits and vegetables, beans, we're switching from animal protein to plant proteins, switching from animal fats to plant fats. And, you know, focusing more on consuming foods that have been associated with reduced risk of stroke, like greens and beans and berries and nuts and seeds, and trying to incorporate your movement and exercise on a regular basis. If somebody's smoking, they should stop smoking. Just by doing these three, I think we can reduce um, 80% of strokes. 80% of strokes are preventable by just addressing these three things. And we know that, you know, by addressing all of these behavioral and uh, metabolic risk factors, we can avert more than three quarters of um, the global stroke uh, burden. Three quarters of the global stroke burden can be averted by addressing these things. And I think that's profound. Uh, Right now, the American Heart Association and International you know, stroke association, they're all focused on quick fixes with the, the clot busting medication and acute treatment of strokes. And I'm really hoping that there is more light and more focus on preventive measures because we have to look at the entire spectrum of health. Even if someone, even if they kind of loosely know that fruits and vegetables are healthy, they probably don't understand the power of those decisions on a day-on-day basis, Very true. accumulating over decades and a connection between that and a stroke. Yeah. yeah. I've had patients in my room where they've had a minor stroke and they come for a follow-up and I pull up their CT angiogram of their brain and I go down from the neck to the brain and I show them like, look, these are your arteries and they have hardened and they have plaque in them. Do you know where the plaque came from? The plaque actually came from the food that you're eating. And if you're able to reduce that food, if you're able to reduce the bad fats and you know, instead of eating a burger, maybe eat a salad or a lentil soup, these can actually open up and they can actually get more blood to your brain. And when they make that connection, when they see their brain Mm. and they see the atherosclerosis, the large humongous plaques in their arteries, oh, something kicks in. I guess to that point as well, people are arguably more motivated after a health scare to make significant change and to invest the time into exploring that. Right. Absolutely. Fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of times it's too late. But, you know, um, working with people who have had minor strokes, I think that's one of the most mm-hmm. rewarding experiences ever because you've been through it. You've known how it feels to be paralyzed. You know how it feels to lose your vision or your speech or your inability to think. And I think we work with probably one of the most motivated population there. So dementia is the big umbrella category. Dementia, by definition, is when people are having difficulty with cognition to the extent where they can't do one of their daily activities. 
two things have to be there as well. It should be chronic. And secondly, it should not be related to something that's immediate. You know, so if somebody has a sudden change in their cognition or it's called delirium, but if it persists, it's dementia. So whenever they have difficulty, that's dementia in general. There are many, many causes for dementia from Lewy body disease, which Robin Williams suffered from, frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia, many others, but Alzheimer's is a subtype of dementia, but it constitutes nearly 70% of all dementia. And Alzheimer's is a degenerative one where the cells and the axons start degenerating decades before the symptoms first manifest, decades. And then after a while, when it first manifests, you've had significant damage by then. So that's the Alzheimer's. And, and the area that's most profoundly affected in Alzheimer's is the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. And those are the memory and cognition centers. Why are certain people, for example, in Loma Linda population seem to be relatively protected or at less risk of developing these diseases compared to other people? I'll go over that data with, we are with Loma Linda, which is actually amazing. And Aisha can explain the pathology and physiology. We'll, we'll, but in Loma Linda, the 3,000 people that I saw over five years, 50% of population of Loma Linda is vegetarian. After five years, 3,000 patients, guess how many people were vegetarian and higher? Edu- the education is another component. How, what, percent, what number of people do you think? It should have been 50. It should have been 1,500 people. Let's say 20%. We're talking about 19 total. 19 people, not 19%. 19 out of 3,000. Yes. So 19 of the 3,000 people that developed dementia Correct. Correct. were vegetarian. Correct. Now, I know uh, the first thing that people should say that this is anecdotal data. Anecdotal but it's pretty strong anecdotal data, unless these people, so why is anecdotal is bad? Because could there be some other elements that could have led people who had dementia Loma Linda to go to other places or not just get diagnosed at all? What are the several elements that make people not get diagnosed? One is lack of knowledge and lower education. The average education in Loma Linda and uh, Seventh-day Adventist population is 17 years, one of the highest in the world. That's not. Second thing is, the center of religion of Seventh-day Adventist population is health. So health is well-known. So they're very health-oriented. So, so not many it. of them smoke or drink alcohol, right? No, exactly. So all that was taken into consideration. Now, the other element of this is that could they selectively have gone somewhere else? Why would they not go to their own institution and travel two hours somewhere else? And why would that be disproportionate? Why? And to this degree of disproportionality. Mm-hmm. So then we looked at the data, the Seventh-day Adventist population, the database itself, which is very well circumscribed, defined. And there's a component where 500 people were followed over three years looking at vegan, lacto-ovo, pescatarian, and omnivores, and looking at cognitive testing. So the cognitive testing was done. And again, it fell, guess how? Stepwise. Vegans did better than lacto-ovos, which did better than pescatarians, which did better than omnivores. Is, this, is that the 1993 study? No, this is the study that we've done. Oh, that this will is be the recent one. Correct. Okay, so this is going to be published this year, next year? Hopefully this year. Okay. This year. So this is, so that corroborated. That. So we're hearing the findings now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Here we go. So it, it's remarkable that we have this kind of data, yet you can't just push it off by saying it's epidemiology. We have cross-sectional. We have anecdotal, but 3,000 anecdotal. And then Aisha was in Columbia University, and they've, they've done studies in California Teachers Study and, and others prospectively, that have shown the same thing again and again and again. The brain is the hungriest organ in the body. This little three-pound organ, which is 2% of your body's weight, consumes 25% of your body's energy. So by definition, it's the same mechanism, the same Krebs cycle, the same all these mechanisms that you know of, but it's being overrun. It's being overwhelmed. It's supposed to live 30 years. 
you know, we are not expected. So when these paleo people bring the example of paleo, really, we were supposed to live 30 years and now you're bringing chronic disease into this formula. You know, we were supposed to, you know, run away from tigers, mate, reproduce and die. Not always in that order, but, you know, we did it. Then the average age was, what was the, 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 the average, anywhere between 15 to 30 right, years right. of age? Yeah, but people only made it beyond age 15. Like 47% of the population made it beyond age 15. And the average age was essentially somewhere between 27 to 37. Most of the people died in their mid-30s. Long enough to sort of procreate. Procreate, exactly. yes. And then now we're using that as a model for chronic disease? Really? I mean, where's the logic in that? Um, so now we're living longer and longer, 70, 80. And that's fantastic. I love it. But the brain is being overwhelmed. Remember that it's, it's the organ that continually works, even at night. In fact, the best work it does is at night. The cleansing that it does is at night. If you traumatize it through lifestyle, which is the biggest trauma, you're going to affect it. Eventually, it's going to catch up. So take me through a little bit more this study that you guys are publishing. Uh, there was a, a paper, you probably saw it, came out, I think it was like a month ago, another one from the Adventist data. Mm -hmm. And it looked at, it was looking at red and processed meat. Did mm -hmm. you see that paper? Yes. And I think the omnivores in that study, the ones that were eating meat, it was only around 49 grams of meat a day, right? Yes. So even the omnivores in that study are consuming far less animal products than this sort of standard American, yeah. right? Yet they still found significant differences. What did you find in your study and how many years is that data taken from? Uh, the same thing, same because it's the same population. Same database. It, it, it's, it's mined from the same, it's a subset of that same population. And, and remember, whenever people do studies, they compare. So when they compare fish, they say fish is good for you. Well, they're comparing it to meat. So comparison matters. In this case, even though we're seeing the omnivores living shorter and unhealthier, the omnivores in Seventh-day Adventist population are actually probably the healthiest people in America. Yet still, even in among that population, when you compare them to the lactovals and vegans, they are way worse off. So that's the comparison we're talking about. And in the general population, it's much worse. Let me give you the, you remember when we went to the churches in San Bernardino? Yes, yes. Community? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, when, when you get out of Loma Linda, you know, just across one highway in San Bernardino County where we work, you get to see one of the, the unhealthiest population there. Um, we work in a community clinic in San Bernardino, and it's not uncommon to see, you know, people in their 40s and 50s starting to have cognitive impairment. I mean, I, I, I'm i a stroke specialist and, you know, it's very common to see someone who's in their 30s coming in with lifestyle diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure and high cholesterol and, you know, having strokes. And when we go there for community talks, we go to a lot of churches to kind of, you know, talk about brain health and how important it is to start thinking about prevention we see individuals in their 60s coming in and, you know, when you're a neurologist, you detect disease very easily because you see it so often. We're not very fun in parties. <laughs> we see it and they have the slowing. They have the slowing of their thinking, uh, the processing, even in their language and walking. And you can tell that that individual yeah. has signs and symptoms of vascular dementia where, you know, say, for example, the high blood pressure or the cholesterol or the diabetes has been there long enough to have damaged the thousands and thousands of arteries that supply necessary nutrients and oxygen to the brain. So it's just incredible how much you actually tend to see that in community as well. And it's only five miles away. Yeah. From, you have the healthiest place in the world here, Loma Linda, 
the seven day Adventists, and then across you have one of the unhealthiest in America. Obviously, it doesn't have to do anything with race. It doesn't have to do anything with genetics. It's lifestyle. Yeah, and Loma Linda, the air quality is not that great. It hasn't affected the Seventh Day Adventists at all. In fact, it's one of the worst air qualities because it's a valley, so all the pollution from LA comes to San Bernardino and settles there. Yet in San Bernardino, five miles away, same same location, pretty much, the prevalence of cognitive decline and dementia is overwhelming, Mm -hmm. and it's all lifestyle. Okay, so we're talking about populations right next to each other with significantly different disease Mm -hmm. risk, neurological disease risk. You mentioned vascular changes. Let's go through the pathology, what's happening, what what in their lifestyle is causing these changes at the cellular level and what exactly are the changes? So we'll talk about the vascular uh, risk factors and vascular health. You hear so many people talking about the brain is made out of fat and, you know, fat, fat, fat. And you get to hear that over and over again. That was one of my uh, topics to go over today. (laughs) We're going (laughs) to. One of the biggest things that people don't realize is that the brain is the most vascular organ in the body. If you had to spread out the vessels that supply oxygen and nutrition to the brain, it would be about 400 miles. So think about these arteries that are as thin as your hair. Or thinner. Or thinner. And, you know, like millions of them. When somebody lives an unhealthy life, say, for example, when they're not caring for what they eat or they don't exercise or they don't sleep or they're under a tremendous amount of stress, what happens is you get processes like inflammation and oxidation and dysregulation of energy and fat causing damage to to the arteries. And this causes damage to the infrastructure and the brain is essentially starved of all the necessary nutrients. And so, you know, there are specific parts of the brain that are more susceptible than others. The hippocampus, which are the areas of the brain that are responsible for memory encoding, it's a very, very sensitive part of the brain and it's, you know, it it senses changes in oxygenation and inflammation and oxidation. And that's the part that is hit. And that's how people actually have a difficult time processing memories, encoding memories, or being very fast when it comes to decision making or planning. And, you know, overall, when, when we see what well, we see thousands and thousands of people coming in with, with MRIs, we get MRIs or, you know, brain imaging to find out if there's any structural damage or vascular damage. And there's a term called white matter disease. And you see these individuals with lots of white matter disease. Why? Because they have had high blood pressure. Why? Because they've had very unhealthy diets that were high in saturated fats, high in salt. And over time, that actually destroyed the the, the, the very connections between the cells. And if it's not addressed right away, that can lead to strokes, that can lead to dementias and so many other brain diseases too. The same way that the arteries of the heart gets clogged the same thing happens in the brain as well, even more because the brain is so energy hungry and it always consumes and consumes more energy. It requires more. So any small damage to the vessels actually <clears throat> cause a magnified problem. And my understanding is that you can't reverse dementia and Alzheimer's. Am, am I correct in saying that? Or can you actually get some reversal of damage? I'm, I'm glad you're asking this question because there are a lot of people out there who are just 
making a lot of money off of the concept that you can reverse Alzheimer's disease. And I want to be clear here that you cannot reverse Alzheimer's disease. When dementia has set in and it's advanced enough where by the time it manifests, a large portion of the brain has already been damaged. And there's no way you can reverse that. But if it's in its earlier phases, like mild cognitive impairment, and if you implement healthy lifestyle, then you can reverse some of the damage that has been done. It's critical to find out if you have Alzheimer's, first of all, because a lot of times the diagnosis is given without a thorough examination. So that's critical because dementia, which is the bigger category, the umbrella category, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And dementia is when their cognitive capacity of anybody is affected enough where they can't do daily activities. So to you, you go to a regular physician, they might actually see a dementia and say, oh, it's Alzheimer's, especially if somebody's older. But a lot of times it's not. It's vascular dementia or it's metabolic, meaning it's related to some deficiency, you know, B12 deficiency or, you know, some, some metabolic deficiency, some toxicity, things of that nature. Those are rare. I want to preface here that a lot of people are making a lot of money on this side category by saying, come to us and we have these incredible labs. And, and by the way, it's incredible when they do the testing, they will always find something. And when they find something, guess what? They have the cure for it, some vitamin concoction. But the deficiencies that, that, that cause dementia are fairly, you know, um, B12, thyroid disorders or metabolic disorders or something goes, goes wrong. And that's easily rectified, but not with some concoction that you have to buy. So first and foremost, you have to be diagnosed in a formal setting and, and maybe even get a second diagnosis, a second opinion. And once you have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, which is through imaging, clinical and history, by the and, way. And that's, that's with a, a neurologist. Right? They're with a neurologist, yeah. absolutely. And a university-based neurologist. Correct. Somebody that has access to the latest data, latest diagnostic procedures and techniques. Absolutely. And then the history matters because a lot of times, especially men come say, I'm, I'm fine. My wife just brought me here. I'm, I can remember 50 years back, but I can't remember this morning's breakfast. Well, that's exactly the diagnosis. When short-term memory is disproportionately affected, in comparison to long-term memory. So you have to be diagnosed well in a good setting. And if you do have Alzheimer's and you're already in dementia stage, it's nobody's been able to reverse it despite people's claims. And those claims have been so weak that they, have, they themselves have not been able to repeat it. Hmm. And nobody else has been that has not been paid by them. So I could, we could have easily sold millions of books if we had said we can reverse Alzheimer's. And we were asked, we can't, nobody can so that's critical because if we make a statement like that, we're playing with people's hopes, which is the most important thing people have. But you can slow the disease down and more importantly, affect the symptoms, which is anxiety, fear, um, some memory loss and attention and focus. All of that you can do. The important thing is that if we all, even in younger age, start instituting just even minimal changes in lifestyle, we can significantly, let me give you an idea. If we can push Alzheimer's back five years, the cost that I was quoting before will be demolished, will be a fraction of that by the time we push it just five years. And that's what we're hoping to do. An incremental change can be made. Aisha did one of the biggest studies in the country, that California teacher study when she was in Columbia. She won the American Heart Association Research Award for that. And I will, I'll let you speak about it. I, I just set you up. <laughs> you, you, you won the award? Come on. Yeah. 
he always brags about me. Um, <laughs> That's great. But I think it, it was really exciting because it's one of it was one of its kind study where um, you know you see this population that has been studied for over twenty five years, and you have a lot of information from them. So you get a lot of questionnaires. They they fill out five questionnaires. So we had a lot of data on them, and I wanted to look at stroke because you know there's a big correlation between. Alzheimer's disease and vascular diseases of the brain now, but you know we try to focus on stroke. And the next uh, set of analysis is on Alzheimer's disease, and I wanted to look at diet because you know everybody talks about the Mediterranean diet, and it's just a really hot topic. And I was intrigued by it. I wanted to know what was the Mediterranean diet. What was it made of? You know, what does it mean for somebody in San Bernardino County eating a Mediterranean diet? You know, that structure and that calculation has been used in all of the studies around the world. So whenever you hear the Mediterranean diet, there is a particular way of scoring the dietary patterns. And just to set it up a little more, you remember that when they do these studies, it's not just done in Mediterranean it's, or whatever that is, because even that's a question. Where is it? Is it, you know, um, uh, Italy? Is it Greece? Greece? Is it Israel? Is it where is it? Mm. It's actually when they when they do these studies, they, they do it throughout the world. But they call it Mediterranean diet. So what does that mean? Is it the wine, cheese, olives, music? What is it? <laughs> the way they define it is how Aisha found out that, oh, how they're looking at Mediterranean diet is the same everywhere. And it's defined by? Yeah. So you, you basically get scored. You get a high score if you eat fruits, vegetables, whole grain, legumes and lentils, nuts and seeds, and sources of omega-3 fatty acids. It doesn't necessarily have to be fish because when we analyzed the California teacher study, almost everybody ate, uh, you know, nuts and seeds. And we also looked at fats. You know, people think that everybody's guzzling down olive oil on Mediterranean diet, but these people didn't. They actually didn't even know back then in the 1990s of whether they should use olive oil or not. So we calculated the amount of polyunsaturated fat in their diet. So that was the high score. For vegetables, essentially the plant-based components and sources of omega-3 fatty acids and polyunsaturated fat. You get a low score if you consume meat, poultry, dairy, and high-fat dairy. So essentially you're getting, you're getting a dietary pattern that, that's essentially plants. And it's, it's whole and so it's unprocessed. I mean, overall, were they consuming much total fat? No, they weren't. If you had to label somebody adhering fully to a Mediterranean diet, they would be eating mostly plants and they would have relatively high sources of omega-3 fatty acids from nuts and seeds. Of course, in any large study like that, people fall across the spectrum to totally unhealthy. And so, mm -hmm. so what they did was given that definition, whole food plant, they created a spectrum of nine levels. So the highest adherence, meaning level nine, which was all plants, no meats, they actually lowered their chance of stroke by 44%. There we go. What did I say? Aren't the Sherzai's just incredible? It's nice to bring all of the highly practical and instructive information into one episode, right? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you are looking for more information on brain health, then I do suggest reading through chapter seven in my book, The Proof is in the Plants, and also grabbing a copy of the Sherzai's 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, a brilliant read that contains both the why and the how with a mix of information and recipes. 
two books that complement one another and will really, really help you make sense of the science and take your nutrition game to the next level. As always, both myself and The Shares Eyes would love to hear from you on social media. You can find us on Instagram at sharesimd and at plant underscore proof. Let's continue this conversation together. If you did enjoy today's episode, please make sure you are following or subscribe to the show. And if you can take a minute and leave a review on the iTunes app, that would be greatly appreciated. When a show has more reviews, it helps convert people that may be sitting on the fence as to whether they want to listen or not. So they do help. Thanks for hanging out with me. I love learning about all of this stuff together and look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, more plants, my friends, more plants. And perhaps based on today's conversation, let's all have a think about that sleep routine too.